It's 12 Enough, Season 12, Episode 2, with your host, Jonathan Malone, and guest host, John Hendricks. Twelve Enough is a podcast about Christian faith and culture in the modern age. Your host, Jonathan Malone, is the pastor of the First Baptist Church of East Greenwich, Rhode Island. John Hendricks is an author, an illustrator, and teacher, and you can find him at johnhendricks.com. That is all over the world. This podcast is brought to you by One Hermit. They tried to get two, but he's a hermit. He's by himself. Just him. Sponsoring this podcast. And by no one else. One hermit. Didn't you hear me the first time? He couldn't get anyone else. He's a hermit. And we're back. Um, That was the most aggressive sponsor I think I've ever had. One hermit. I'm sorry. Mr. Hermit, uh, John Rondeau, look him up. Um, sorry that I thought maybe you could get two sponsors, which I normally do. I'm sorry that you were so adamant that you'd be by yourself. Sheesh. Okay, get over yourself. And uh, check out John Rondeau. Uh, if you need a hint, Google in Adirondacks as well. So uh, I recorded this episode a little while ago. We are now in uh, deep quarantine time. Uh, when I'm trying to do this out intro and edit, start editing this show. And, uh, you know, so I'm really glad when I did this interview or this conversation with John Hendricks, it was through Skype. So I didn't give him anything. He didn't give me anything. We were clean. Everything was good. Uh, John Hendricks uh, wrote and illustrated a graphic novel about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my heroes, called The Faithful Spy. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, and um, he looks at his faith and looks at. Uh, what Bonhoeffer was about, and all those kinds of fun things. So we had a good conversation, and I hope you enjoy this conversation I had with John Hendricks about his graphic novel, graphic novels in general, and everything else. I'm here with John Hendricks. John Hendricks is a an artist, a writer. How how else would you describe yourself? Illustrator, uh, author. Uh, I I ha- it took me a while to get to call myself a writer. I always said I was an author, which allowed huh. me, in my mind, wiggle room that never put any pressure on my actual prose. Uh, but with the length of Faithful Spy, I don't think I can avoid it. I, I think I'm I'm a writer. That is interesting. I ne- I, I've heard people say, I'm a writer trying to publish, and then I'm an author. Right. Uh, and and you're, you've swapped it. <laughs> no, no. If you think of like David Weisner, who wrote, uh, you know, picture books that have won the Caldecott uh, that were wordless, you know, right. he's definitely an author, but he's not a writer, you know, so. Right, yeah, yeah, I and mean, that makes sense. And, uh, and, and I think this will dovetail into kind of the area I'm, I'm hoping we can, we can talk about today. Uh, the idea of, of the graphic novel as a, as a medium of, of uh, you know, of literature in its own right. But before yeah. we even get there, you know, so that, you know, people listening have an idea what we're talking about, you wrote this wonderful book called The Faithful Spy, um, and, uh, and I, I thank you for putting in a subtitle in there. So if you were writing it out, The Faithful Spy, colon, A True Story, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Plot to Kill Hitler. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's funny that part, the the true story part was added uh, like at the eleventh hour because the absurdity of the story was w- the publishers oh. wanted to make sure that people knew this was this really happened this uh, and this was not a sort you know a sort of alternate history or a right. you know so they, yeah so the the fact that it's nonfiction was very important. Oh, that's interesting. Do you think that if you were writing this um, just as prose itself, without not as a as a graphic novel, they would have that same kind of concern? Yeah, I no. I think that pictures often indicate um, people who are not visually literate. They look at comics mm-hmm. and they think, oh, this is going to be funny, right. or it's it's fiction. You know, so I do think having imagery often 
subtly indicates that it's fanciful, uh, even though that's not really true. Right, right. And that seems to be still a challenge for um, in the genre that, that many are, are wrestling with. Um, so I, you know, I got this book through, through Mike Morrell's um, listing, and I was, able, I was happy to read it and, and write a review. And, and people, you can find my review on my blog. Um, it was an excellent book. But I will tell you, before I read it, so I, I got the book and I thought, wow, this guy uh, did a graphic novel on a World War II story. I better reread Mouse. Uh-huh. Uh, there you go. Yeah, Art Spiegelman's book. And luckily I had a copy because uh, one of my kids hates reading. And I had to, as I said, if you read this, you know, then, and then I'll count it as a book. So I bought him Mouse. And he actually read it and enjoyed it. So I was like, oh, good. <laughs> See? And, and for those who don't know, um, Mouse is just this brilliant graphic novel. It came out in what, the 80s? Uh, I think it was early 90s, 91, 92, and it had, okay. been, uh, it had been serialized. Um, you know, he had done it in pieces and then collected it in two volumes that were eventually put together in, in one book, which it was, yeah, as I'm sure you were aware, the audience may not know it, but it was first graphic novel to win the Pulitzer Prize. Right, yeah, and uh, and, and I think it kind of just helped to, to um, create this path for the graphic novel as a, a legitimate form of literature. Yeah, oh, yeah, 100%, yeah. Yeah. So and and so that's always been in the back. And folks, it's spelled M A U S. I don't know if I said that by Art Spiegelman. Um, so I thought I better have that in in the background as I'm reading this. And I'm wondering, as you were working on on the Faithful Spy, was that something that was in your mind as well? Oh yeah, I, it, it's hard to not have um, a kind of. Uh, it's like a lineage. Like if mm-hmm. you're doing nonfiction graphic novel. Um, you, you owe something to Mouse, but mm. especially if you are in the World War II um, narrative. And, you know, it's uh, we look back at it now as almost um, it, almost anything that is a groundbreaking innovation eventually will be seen as, as trite because people lift it so many times. Mm. Uh, you think of, like, even watching Blade Runner, you know, like that. Right. That aesthetic has been used, and of course, you might watch Blade Runner and not realize that that was the innovator. And so, Mouse, the idea of making um, the Nazis cats and the Jews mice, right, um, was was so nutty, you know, and and almost like flippant. Like, is it is it too flippant right. for the for the subject matter? And so, you know, I employ a lot of visual metaphor in this book that really is is related to to Mouse and and from its its kind of lineage. Yeah, I noticed that the. Um, I mean, I appreciate that it's in, in a similar way to Mouse, and, I, and not that you were um, aping or, or copying Mouse, but uh, certainly influenced. I, I think you, the, I noticed a style of your own throughout it. Um, but I appreciate how the extraordinarily violent moments in the book mm-hmm. were. You did lean more heavily on the metaphor than showing yeah. it, uh, and then also the wolf. Uh, yeah. That now that was an interesting choice, and and I like how you you uh, you reference the historical uh, background of why the wolf was an idea, but um, you seemed seemed like you really leaned into that that idea of of Hitler portraying himself as the wolf and the Nazi Party portraying itself as the wolf. Was that that was a deliberate choice? Yeah, and and part of it is it's it's a real tricky thing to write uh, difficult subject matter for children because I think you know obviously adults have gotten a lot out of the book too, but the audience is is middle graders, right? And so the last thing you want to do is um, whitewash history and not tell the real story, but you also want to protect younger younger readers and not uh, expose them to things they're not ready for. So, it, it, you know the violence. Um, you want to you want to describe what happened, and you right. want to give language to it, especially visually. That's not traumatic. So, to me, the visual metaphors are are helpful to underscore the urgency and the severity of what was happening, but give them language to process it. Mm. That's excellent. And so, so middle age. What what would you have liked to have said that you weren't able to in this book? Is there something you would like to have gone more deeply into? Um, or a bit of information you would have liked to share, but you thought, you know, for the audience you're writing for, probably not uh, appropriate? Yeah, well, I, I mean, there's there's not much in there about the Holocaust, partially because Dietrich was, you know, not aware of the scale of it. Right. Um, and so you, it, it's a balancing act. You you want to make sure the readers are aware of the just how, the scale of it. Right. And just how horrific it was and the kind of trauma it inflicted. 
and um, you want to also be accurate to the story. Um, so I, I think, you know, if, if, if I was writing for adults, I think I would have gone a lot deeper in, into Hitler's psychology, um, mm. into his, you, you don't want to ever, especially for children, paint him as a sort of sympathetic character. Right, because, right. You know, th- that's not something, a box you want to open. Normally, it's interesting to unpack a, the protagonist and the antagonist and say like, oh, what made them, what made them really tick? And were they, were they more like us than we're willing to admit? But, but in, for this audience, it didn't seem right. Yeah. Um, I think, I think an adult audience could handle that dissonance a little easier. So mm. it, it's always, it's always a little tricky, uh, with, with portraying evil and, right. and do it in an appropriate way. I wonder if you could ever get away with doing that with Hitler. In, in our, and I think about that because we're in such a polarized time uh, mm. that if, if you just suggest something slightly one side or the other, it, it's, people tend to just immediately throw you into that category. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you did write something saying, let's look at his psychology, let's try to understand where Hitler was coming from, you know, you're running a risk of someone oh, saying, yeah. so, oh, so clearly you're an Aryan now or you're, you're, you know, you're a racist or a neo-Nazi. And, and I get the impression from your book that you're not. I didn't ask you overtly, but I'm going to trust that that's the case. That is the case. So I'm wondering if Hitler is that example that is so extreme that we can't, um, mm-hmm. that, that it's too risky. I think you're right. And in fact, I think he is like the sort of test case for whenever your argument gets to using Hitler, you've probably lost, you know. So right. it, it is that's... a very interesting idea that he's – he just cannot be portrayed in any sort of sympathetic light. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's go, true. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, and, and there's one page that I nearly didn't include, um, which as he's explaining his, his Aryan beliefs where he says uh, things about, you know, the Jew is, is, is the, the devil, basically. Right. Um, I had a page where all it says in this big type is these were horrid ideas. And I, I, almost felt like, well, you don't need to say that. But, you know, as I spoke with my editor and he was right, but, uh, you know, you to lay out, this is a, this is not a good idea. Like these are immoral things. So really spelling it out for the reader. And of course, when I was starting this book, I didn't have the context of where we are today. And, Mm. you know, this was in 2014 when I was really starting to build the idea. So, uh, you know, it's, suddenly it's become a lot more frightening yeah which is which is really um that that does speak to where we are today have you thought about writing a fiction book where you can kind of you know again hitler's off the table we can't can't use that but and where you can have a villain but then invite the reader to empathize with the villain to a certain degree Mm mm-hmm yeah, and I and I think there's characters from history where that that is interesting. Where, um, you know, maybe they weren't the sort of portrait of depravity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I actually think John Brown is an interesting one. I've written a book about him. John, uh, John I, Brown, I, the abolitionist. Yes, yes. Oh yeah. I I believe he was actually a, a civil rights uh, hero, but. You know, depending on where you grew up, he he's a, a villain. Or, or if you're from a, a more liberal persuasion where um, actions motivated by religious belief are mm-hmm. seen as uh, sort of crazy, right? So, you know, he I think he can be portrayed as hero or villain depending on what side of the aisle you're on. And so, to me, that's a very interesting argument to present uh, to, to young people. Well, and you think about the the now Oscar winning movie Joker. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, now I haven't seen it, so here I am going to uh, speak about a movie I haven't seen. But that's what I do. Um, right. <laughs> it, that seems to be doing that same thing of saying, "Let's try to understand where he's coming from, so that you have a, a softer sense of of the villain." Yeah. Um, right. And and that's certainly and and I know with with comics, and I don't know how deep you want to get into like um, you know comic lore and, and narrative and, and those kind of things. They that certainly has been happening. I can't say exactly when, but I know one of the the radical one of the amazing things about Watchmen is you were left saying like so who's the villain and who's the hero now uh, yeah oh yeah for sure I mean the the reversing of the hero and antihero is is a trope that I think is very enjoyable as a um, 
as a device to do storytelling. It's just, you know, the sad thing is, is that if you, if you employ it too sloppily Mm. and in nonfiction storytelling, yeah, you you inject, I mean, the, the writer's always injecting his editorial beliefs into any biography, right? but you want to avoid it as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Which is what I try to do. Um, in a broader sense, when I'm when I'm working with my congregation, my people, I try to say we can't call people evil. Um, we can look at their deeds, their ideas, and say that's evil. That was wrong. That was evil. And, and it's because as soon as we call someone evil, we make them so other that we don't have to have any compassion or feeling towards that person. And I think as humans, that's a dangerous place for us to go. Right. Um, and always then the response is like, well, what about Hitler? And I say, well, Goodwin's Law, you can't bring that up. Bring up another example. Um, right. Yeah, right. You know, but it's, it's out, that also is a fair example. Like, you know, what about him? You say, well, his ideas, his thoughts, like you wrote, they were evil. And mm-hmm. what, what he did was evil. Could I say that Hitler, you know, in the essence of his being was evil? That gets into a theological conversation of does God create evil? And I, I'm not in a place where I'm willing to say yes to that. Um, well, but, if we if we go to Jesus's example, he seemed mm-hmm. to be saying when he was telling us uh, with the 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 parable of the log and the speck, right? right. I, I think he was saying, "Do not be discerning of your friends and your acquaintances." Like discernment is always of interest to him, mm. but it was, it was the judgment that seemed to be his problem with it. Is right. in that in that when we when we label. We're saying, good thing I'm not, I'm not that, right. you know. And Jesus seemed to say, no, you all are profoundly uh, sinful, all right. of you. you know? So you should be careful um, when you are being judgmental rather than being, you know, I mean, discernment was always something he was interested in. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Paul does a similar thing in Romans, um, just that sense of like, hey, you know, none of us are perfect. None of us can, can stand up and say we did everything right. Um, and, and I think in, in the Bonhoeffer, you you portrayed those times when you know he went when when he wrestled with with his sense of his relationship with with the Nazi regime when he did stand up and and you know sing the the anthem when, mm. when he wasn't as pure in his, in his convictions as others may have wanted him to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, well, I, one thing, and one thing, I, one story I did not put in there, which yeah. but there's so many I had to leave out. Early on, before he really had codified his his rebellion against the Nazis, he right. was just like uh, you know Bart and all those theologians who were trying to find a middle space with the Nazis. Yeah, and the Nazis had said you can't perform funeral rites for any Jewish um, people you know as a, as a Christian as a Lutheran, and the uh, w- what was kind of amazing about that is he he agreed and he didn't do a funeral service for uh, someone he knew who was jewish of jewish descent right. and afterwards he was just he was so horrified i it, it like snapped into view what, what he had compromised um right and that that set him on the path so he he was not perfect like he he did not do it right all the time uh and that's what was kind of cool about um what yeah. it's choices. And um and I know like you can only get so much in there that when he um agreed to take part in the plot to assassinate Hitler, um spoiler uh for, for people at home who haven't read the book, it failed. Um if you weren't <laughs> aware of that, I don't know what that I can't help you. Um but in some of his letters and some of his writings he really wrestled with even that um stance. And, and not because he was like, well, maybe Hitler's a good guy, because of the idea of to take a life seems so wrong. Yeah. And yet to, you know, to stand by and do nothing seems so wrong. Um, you know, and, and I, yeah, and from what I remember in reading some of his letters, he ended up saying, I'm going to, you know, do what I think is right and just, you know, ask God to have mercy on me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He he did not believe that what they were doing was was right. Yeah. Uh, he he still believed it was um, you know murder, but that that he was going to sin in action or sin in lack of action. Uh, and you know he was stuck basically. He he believed there was no way out. Yeah. Uh, of where they were. And, yeah. Uh, and his his witness, I think, to us is one of 
um, defeat, really. I mean, I mean, I think he obeyed but did not succeed, which is, you know, Jesus seems to be calling us to obey, but to not necessarily mean that obedience means success. You right. know, and that, that's very countercultural. We think, oh, if I do what God wants, I'll be blessed, or right. I will be rewarded, or... I mean, Dietrich made the right choice, and and from his vantage point, he he lost, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. And it it was not something he did out of like power. He was he was weak at every moment, and he led with that weakness, and that that's what's sort of compelling. Yeah. So if you look from the world standards, here's a guy who was an up and coming theologian, a great pastor, and then ended up making these choices that alienated him from the people in power. And he ended up having published some books, but not everything. He never got to finish his ethics. And you could say, this guy's a failure, um, mm-hmm. was was executed. And so by yeah. some standards, and yet he, I think, is one of the more sin- significant 20th, well, one of the most significant 20th century martyrs. Um, but beyond that, his his ethics and his other theological works are continuing to be read and wrestled with. He hasn't. He's had an impact and continues to have an impact, um, just with a little bit that he's done. Mm-hmm. From you know, from an academic point of view, he was incredibly successful uh, on that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You know, and and I could say personally, I've read more Bonhoeffer than Bach, but that's because just Bonhoeffer writes better. Just, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, he's yeah. just more fun to read. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you think it is that that you could tell? The, the part of the stories that you could tell by using the genre of a graphic novel that you think would have been just too tricky to try to write. Yeah, and that's interesting. I do. I do think there is um, something that happens when you use a graphic novel, which is you take um, two two elements that have always uh, flourished together, which is text and image. Right. Yeah. You take text. You put it with image. And you actually create a third thing that's not there independently with either of them. Mm. And so I actually think it's a kind of alchemy. So that that building this this sort of third language of visuality, of like the connection of idea and picture in our mind, I, I actually think it creates more um, learning. I think it helps people remember stuff. Mm. Um, and so... You know, some people hate reading comics because they like read the bubbles and they don't look at the pictures. Right. Some people hate reading. They look only at the pictures. Like, you know, my son was a bit of a reluctant reader. Mm -hmm. And to to have him have a way to navigate an intimidating long book with imagery, um, it it is a way to bridge. Right. Of ideas that, that are complex. So I just think it makes it makes learning and delivery of ideas very clear. Yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the things I like to do, and I still read comics not as often as I'd like to, mostly because I can't afford it. Uh, they're just so expensive now. Um, yeah. But when I do still read them, I like to, the first thing I like to do is just look at the whole page. Because yeah. my, my sense is, and even if you're doing like a, your standard, what is it, nine panel, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's, I, I trust that the artist is setting up those panels in a certain way to guide you through. And, yeah, and that's right. Yeah, and there's an importance, and that for me kind of sets up the emotional tone. For now, I'm going to go panel by panel, bubble by bubble, and read and and take in the pictures and stuff. Um, the danger is sometimes it's set up so that the last panel kind of is is the punchline for whatever the first panel was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I already know where it's going. But I like the journey. I don't mind spoilers. Other people they don't. So that might, that kind of reading may not be best for some. Maybe you read everything and then look back and see the whole panel. But that, that import on, on the visual, um, yeah. I, I totally get that, um, you know, the words just on their own are, are great. And I love reading, but that, that visual, I, I like how you see you know, the alchemy that something mm-hmm. else is, is created. Yeah. And it's kind of indefinable and, and magical. And I, and I think my experience with reading comics, I often do this where I will more so than a novel. Mm-hmm. I don't know I'm reading a novel is I will flip forward and backwards it, it, throughout the book. So I will oh, yeah. read ahead and then I will I will realize I need to skip back and look more closely at things. And there's a there's a forward and backwardness when I read a graphic novel that mm. I actually really love. And so I think sometimes people who are not familiar with reading graphic novels think that's wrong or I need a, I like there's a pressure to absorb everything at once. Right. But I found most graphic novels pay off when you read it multiple times in, in the same passing because it 
it's a weird like collage of things that you experience. So I, I like that. But but for other people, that's frustrating. Oh, but that's a medium. You can't do that with any other medium except maybe right. like you said it now. But you watch a movie, you you don't stop it and rewind. You're like, let me see that scene again or go forward. And, and or with music, you can't do that. But with with visual right. arts and then the graphic novels has a a linear aspect to it more or less. Um, I, I think that's brilliant to be able to go back and say, hold on a second. Uh, it, well, it used to be that movies were, were not like that. You know, when you, well, you sit in a theater, you can't rewind it. You're, right. you're in a stream of time and you can't get out of it. Yeah, my but, biggest challenge in a movie is when can I go to the bathroom? Right, That's exactly. Yeah, which, which if I can go on just a slight diatribe. People, uh, all you movie producers who are listening, and I know you're listening, if your movie is going to be more than two hours, you have got to put in an intermission. It's just inhumane to not have intermission if you're going to have a three-hour movie. So please bring back the intermission. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Thank you. I support that. <laughs> oh, good, good. <laughs> and that's what's cool about graphic novels is they – and this was something I talk to my students when I'm teaching them about comics – is that you, you really have the ability to like control time in, in a way that even a film can't. Mm. Uh, you know, So like one page of comics – could cover a million years yeah. or, or uh, 10 seconds, you know? And so to, to have an audience member not know every time they turn a page, how much time am I traversing? Um, and then have the audience be able to go back in time and read it again. It's just a very interesting like slider that you can use in a, in a reading experience. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's, you ever, have you ever thought about doing a, a, a graphic novel where on a certain moment you say, this might be a good time to revisit page 20 and, mm-hmm. and dwell a little bit longer in what happened then because it really connects with what's happening now. Or do you think it's better? I'm just thinking on the top of my head, or it might it be better just to let the reader decide to do that or not? Well, it's funny. There are, there are some books that it kind of like choose your own adventure where they, they, they play with the idea of skipping around. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's one great book that the whole it's called Here I believe and it's one one location in the woods seen oh. from like the dawn of the dinosaurs until like three thousand years in the future just at one location oh wow and so the camera never moves but time moves mm-hmm. and so you you can read it almost nonlinearly uh, but you know there's a lot of people that do play with that form of storytelling in the graphic novel for sure so um what what would you if someone came to you and said John, I want to get into graphic novels. What would you recommend? Oh, man, where to start? Yeah. Uh, man, well, okay, so if you did, if you did nonfiction, okay. uh, but there are a series of graphic novels written by Representative John Lewis. Oh, um, I know this series, yeah. Yeah, March. Yeah. The, those are great to, to talk about the civil rights era. Yeah. Uh, and they're wonderful nonfiction storytelling. It used to be that history com- things called history comics uh-huh. were like the dregs of – like they, they were sort of disreputable. Like no one was going to read a comic about George Washington crossing the Delaware. But it, in the, the last five to ten years, um, nonfiction has really grown in comics. If you have young people, there's a series of books called Nathan Hale's Hazardous Tales. No kidding. That, that take on like the Donner Party or – um, World War One or Doolittle's Raid, and they're they're actually told with a lot of humor, but they are loaded with real facts and stories. And so, uh, I always recommend. I read those. I love them. Nice. I've read the Alamo one. I mean, I learned so much about the Mexican American War. Oh from wow! Me. Yeah. Well, when so, I th- when I think comedy, I always go right to Donner Party, anyways. So that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, it's tasty. Uh, what about fiction? Uh, did you have any other nonfiction you wanted? Because I didn't no, know about Nathan Hale. No. There's there's so many great nonfiction ones. Um, there's there's one called El Defo, which is uh, about a young girl who's uh, struggling. She, she's deaf and about okay. her as a as a kid um, trying to get friends. Um, so you know, there's sweet personal nonfiction. Um, yeah. You know, relationship stuff. Uh, and I mean, where to even begin with with if you want to start with like the classics, you know, you should read Watchmen. You should yeah. read, um, you know, Will Eisner. Uh, his he, he was the person who basically invented the, the right. graphic novel with his series. Um, and I mean, from there, I, I'd say Chris Ware, you know, uh, Jimmy Corrigan was was a very 
transformational book that came out, gosh, that's probably 15 years ago now. Um, it was sort of about a lonely kid, you know, in the city. Um, you know, Paul Pope writes very interesting sort of speculative fiction, you know, mm. things set in the future. Um, he has a, he has a series called, um, uh, Escapo uh, about a sort of magician. I mean, they're, they're really, it's endless. I, I think starting with the, starting with the early classics, um, Watchmen, uh, city of God. Um, yeah, there's a ton where you could really get, get the foundations. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What was Eisner's series about? Uh, oh, it was, well, it's centered around an apartment building. Um, oh, okay. I just didn't know about this. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he has a ton, but that, that's, that's a great one to start with. And now, and listeners, so you know, that's, they've actually named, um, like the, the Oscars more or less of comics and graphic novels and stuff are the, the Eisner awards. Yes, that's right. So named in his stead. Um, and every now and again, I try to look and see what won in the past year and think about buying it. And then I remember that's expensive. <laughs> right. But that's that's really helpful. And I encourage people um, to read that. Uh, getting back to your book, why the color scheme that you picked? Yeah. I mean, that I, I'm I'm sure that was deliberate. It can can you? It's almost felt like I was I should be wearing 3D glasses while reading it. Yeah, it, it definitely was intentional. So you probably noticed that when Bonhoeffer's on the page, it's his story. It's that teal color, and when Hitler's yeah. there, it's the it's the red. And uh, one, I wanted the, to be able the viewer to like locate themselves in the story just just at a glance, very, very quickly. Oh, okay. You know, like to be able to say, okay, I, you know, for for a young person, like you know, where are we right now? Okay, this is this is Dietrich. This is Hitler. Uh, and then as the story progresses, um, you know, the colors start to overlap. They, they begin to, um, interfere with each other and create that, that vibration, uh, which I, I wanted that sense of sort of dislocation and dissonance. Uh, that wasn't, you know, an intentional oh, nice. design so that you, that you just began to feel unsettled as these colors overlap and vibrate. Right. Yeah, I, I'm noticing. I'm flipping through it again and really starting to notice that more and more. I, I'm not that uh, I'm not that obvious of a reader, and that's the problem. I just I didn't even realize that. Oh, Bonhoeffer's blue, Hitler's red. Oh, look at that. Um, it probably hit me subconsciously. Yeah. Um, well, and then that, that's just if you don't, you know, and that's okay if you don't read a lot of graphic novels. You're probably not like thinking about that. But again, it's it's painting a sort of experience that is maybe to some degree almost uh, subconscious. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it was. And yeah, now the more I'm flipping through it, yeah, it does get. Um, so that's, I, I think that's fantastic. Um, the very end, your choice of having it in the water. Mm -hmm. Where did that come from? Well, so I didn't know how to end this book. Yeah, uh, I bet not. Because <laughs> I started the book with, you know, he's he, he's dead on the first page, basically. Yeah. So then what do you do again? I didn't want to tell the same story again. Um, and I also felt like he needed, he didn't win. You know, he was killed. He never, he never experienced victory. So I wanted him to have a moment where he met the Lord basically. Right. And I couldn't figure out how to do it. And then I was listening to, um, an Andrew Peterson song and he's a, he's a, uh, Christian singer songwriter okay and about uh, having a dream and waking up and uh, experiencing um, sort of the the redemption of all things and and as I was listening I was like oh he should he should have a dream the night before his execution mm. and, and that would be the the way in you know um, so that that's how it unfolded and it it, it was um, once I figured it out it actually was it, it, the whole sequence I wrote in probably 15 minutes, but oh, it nice. was, it, you know, it was like how you get there is the problem. Right, right. Because, yeah, there, there's, yeah, there's obviously like multiple ways of ending the story itself. Oh, um, yeah. That, that's a problem writing books. There's no right answer. Like there's no, there's, there's 10,000 ways you could do it and they might all be right or they might all be bad. You right. know, 
it's it's frustrating. I mean, there are definitely wrong answers. I think we could say that for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, there's no right one, but there are things definitely you could do. There are definitely some wrong ones, that's yeah. right. Yeah, if, if you have Bonhoeffer, then, like, you know, having a barbecue. Right. Like, that doesn't... Uh, maybe, like, a musical ending, that would also be bad. Yeah, right, right, with a big number, with elephants yeah. and everything. Yeah, that that probably wouldn't wouldn't work as well. <laughs> I mean, but the, I mean, the quote that you have, that's, I mean, that's really a well-known quote. Um, you know, for people who, who read a lot about Bonhoeffer, that does capture this sense of this serenity that Bonhoeffer had in mm-hmm. in knowing he's taking, you know, this is the final day, that morning when he, he knows he's going to be hung. And and, uh, and just the imagery you have of, you know, that you paint in the very end of on the beach and, and going up in the water. I think it, I, I liked it. I really liked the ending. Oh, good. Um, I th- you know, I felt it. Yeah, I know you, that's where you're waiting for that one bit of approval from me. Well, I I was nervous about it because it's it's speculative, you know. Yeah. No one knows that. I'm I'm giving Bonhoeffer thoughts that he didn't have, you know. So anytime you do that, you want to make sure the reader understands you're taking some license and that it's appropriate. So right. you know, I don't I didn't do that in many places in the book, but you know, I did it in a few places. I thought it worked. Well, I think I will say um, when I you know in reading the very or the very beginning when you have your asterisks. For marking yeah. texts that are, are actually, you know, that you, we have, we can cite source and others. I thought that was really smart. Um, so for the readers to know, there are times in here where after a certain bit of text, there'll be an asterisk. And that says, um, these are direct quotations from other sources. And and then elsewhere, it, it's you speculating of maybe he would have said this. Uh, I mean, you would have been really hamstrung to try to tell this story. And with the narrative focus that you have... If you could only use direct quotes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been very difficult. And actually, I, I mean, that's not even my idea. I mean, that was my editor that suggested that, oh, which okay. is why it's why you have editors, because I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm just making a speculative right. fiction. And, and he's like, but you're doing all the research. You should let people know what the quotes are. So, you yeah. know, obviously. He's why they. That's why they get the big, the big books. That's right. That's why they get the that, and they can tell you no, the comma doesn't belong there. Um, that's, oh. yeah, <laughs> that's the reason. But it actually, it. I mean, it. It gave for for me. It gave further further credibility to the story. Um, it it added that that bit of truth to what I was reading, and you know, I haven't read a lot of nonfiction graphic novels, so I don't have a ton of experience with that. But you know that you we do run that risk of. You know, like people reading it and saying, "Well, it's a comic book, so it's not going to be true." You know, mm-hmm. how do how do we offer this validity, this veracity to the story? I I really liked it. I really liked knowing like these are th- moments when yes, this is what the person actually said. Um, so kudos to your editor, but kudos to you as well for listening to your editor because you could have always have said, "No, I'm going to do what I want." And yeah, that's true. And, and I, I, uh, he's very good. I always trust his judgment, but I also think that he, he was saying that what it does is it gives readers the ability to relax, uh, when they're reading. Cause mm-hmm. you know, like in a world of, you know, not that children know the reference, but that, um, Tarantino's, you know, he'll do historical things, but then add in elements that are completely right. hyperbolic and fake. And so, you know, then, it, then it, I mean, he's intentionally unsettling people, right? Uh, but you don't want to do that if you're writing uh, nonfiction for children, right? Right. You don't, <laughs> I mean, you you unsettle them for other reasons. That's right. Only the ways that I want to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to now imagine what would happen if if Tarantino edited your book, uh, what he would have you do. I mean, obviously, Bonhoeffer would live in the end. Oh, for sure. Well, no, he would have a machine gun, and he would he would you know destroy the entire Flossenburg camp. Yeah, uh, yeah, which makes total sense. And I, yeah, honestly, I understand the appeal of his movies. I mean, I get why that's a fun exercise. Actually, he was linked to a John Brown manuscript um, oh. a few years back, which I sort of I secretly hated and also wanted to see. You know, oh. like I think it would have both damaged his legacy and also I would have loved to watch it. Have you read? Oh man, I can't remember the McBride. I think wrote it. The book, The Good Lord Bird. I have read that. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's a great telling of the John Brown story. Yeah, I've got uh, some friends who are scholars, and they hate all um, 
the fiction about John Brown's interior life and they refused to read it. But I, I have gone to the mat and said, you got to read that one because it's really it's really great. And, you know, HBO's doing a show on it. Really? Based yeah. on that based on that book? Yeah. On the McBride book. Uh, it's Ethan Hawke is playing uh, John Brown. That sounds right. I think Ethan Hawke is now at that place. I know. I, at first, I was like, "That can't be true." And then, and then I saw some photos, and I'm like, "Oh, I think it's the work." Well, he's gotten older and more weathered in his look, so I think he's ready. The the young, handsome Ethan Hawke couldn't pull it off, but now, yeah, uh, that's right. That's <laughs> and for those f- folks who don't know, John Brown, his homestead is in the Adirondacks. Uh, that's right. Not that he was ever there. He was a horrible family man. Great abolitionist, but horrible family man. That's right. Um, not to put him down too much. And uh, several of his sons died with him on his on his raid. So you know, not great. Right. Not great example for dads. This, which is why, parents, when your kids say, "Can we go play catch?" Say yes to that, because who right. knows what they may end up doing to to try to get your approval. Um, don't don't have your children raid a federal installation with you. Yeah, I think that's a fair. Rule of thumb. And I think that's actually in one of the latter chapters of Dr. Spock's book on on child raising. Not cited as much as it should. No, weirdly, right? Um, (laughs) um, I appreciated most of your sources. I I did look at those. Um, I do want to just mention, and I hope this – I'm going to try to be as diplomatic as possible. I know know what you're going to say. Okay. Oh, yeah. So McTexas's um, Bonhoeffer biography is uh, – this is more for the, uh, the listeners, I guess, because yeah, if you already know, then you know. Um, most of the stuff is really good. And you read um, um, Beeth's uh, stuff, which is he's the guy. Yeah. Uh, but McTexas, is, he's, he's got a very biased reading of Bonhoeffer and over-evangelizes um, or over-captures Bonhoeffer as this kind of um, – um, evangelical that doesn't make sense with who Bonhoeffer was and in that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so his, his biography is problematic, but um, that's, I'm just, for me, for me, it's problematic. You may disagree. Um, others will disagree for sure, but I think all the other sources are really good, and I was happy to see that you, you really did some good research. Well, thank you. I, I, do, I do think it behooves any person writing a book to read all the major biographies. So Yeah, fair. I, I read his, um, and it is very problematic. Um, I did use it as a source for certain materials that was not the, it was not foregrounding any of his editorial, um, work. Right. Uh, but yeah, I I would agree that the general, the, the painting of Bonhoeffer as a sort of proto evangelical or a culture warrior is a, is a very poor reading of his, uh, legacy. Yeah. Oh, I I do not recommend the Metaxas book for people. I, I I tell people who are like casual readers and want to do a little bit more than my book to read that Charles Marsh book, which I really liked and, and yeah. was like slim enough that doesn't intimidate people. Um, right. And I always tell them to read uh, if you want to read his stuff, um, you know, in that era, read the letters and papers from prison. It's just so good. Yeah. Um, I, I usually do uh, Cost of Discipleship or Life Together. Those are the two I recommend. Um, the letters and papers are great as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, don't read, if you are going to read his dissertations, don't read his first one. Read his second one, uh, <laughs> The Communion of the Saints. But that gets into, of course, you know, I was reading, I'm like, where's the theology? But you didn't have the time or the space, and it wouldn't have been appropriate to get into his theology. Um, yeah. Right. You know, yeah, I mean, it's, it is very interesting. And, and he was, you know, he was a liberal. If evangelicals are looking at him. Right. He, he was a liberal theologian in Germany. Yes. Uh, and so you, we can't you can't confuse that or forget that. But, you know, but also he was one of the more conservative liberal theologians. So yeah. it's like, it, you know, you have to you just have to read it and, and not um, categorize it before you start thinking about it. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Yeah, he was. A, I mean, he was a groundbreaking theologian, and many of the um, post-liberal theologians in the United States today, um, Harawas being one of them, I can't remember the others right now. Uh, McClendon um, were influenced strongly by Bonhoeffer's writings and thoughts. I mean, he was, you know, he was working off of Karl Barth and then disagreeing with Barth, which is unheard of, uh, right. uh, but doing it in such a smart way that really helped create a path for 
um, people who wanted to look beyond just the liberal and conservative dichotomies that we continue to still wrestle with. Uh, yeah. and, you know, and that's where Bonhoeffer really speaks to me. Obviously, your book can't get to that. And, and that's not a critique. Like, you were trying to tell a certain story. And if you started to tell that story, it would be a bad book. Yeah. <laughs> it just well, and, and it's for, you know, 13-year-olds. And, and most of them right. are not interested in theological debates. I, <gasps> I, I, How dare you? I know. It's a, it's a stunning admission. But <laughs> I, I tried to hint at that as much as possible to, to show the sort of breadth of what he was wrestling with. Yeah. You know, without talking about his Christology. You know, like that's not helpful. Right, right. Well, that's I mean, that's part of a, a writer's decision is what is a story you are going to tell? And yeah. and you you tell what you can tell. Right. Well, um, John, I appreciate your time. I know that you like you said, you have that. Do you want to say anything about the next book you're working on or do you want to keep that hush oh, hush? Yeah. No, I, uh, it's it's out. It's out in the open. So oh, okay, I'm good. On a, a graphic novel of a sort of similar format to Faithful Spy in terms of length and the way it's experienced, but about uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien's friendship oh, and nice. how it started in, you know, they, they share roots in World War One, and then they, you know, sort of accidentally reinvented uh, fantasy fiction for simultaneously for both children and adults. Um, right. And it came out of a friendship, basically. So... Uh, that, that'll be out in, I mean, I, I'm just at the front end of that. So mm-hmm. uh, that probably won't be out till 22 or 23, but. Will there be a translation written all in Elvish? <laughs> I'm going to work on that. I think I may need a Kickstarter. For, for that. <laughs> just, it's the grammar that gets people more than anything. It's just, it doesn't yeah. translate well, but I mean, I would, I would appreciate it. No, well, uh, that sounds fantastic. Um, and, and uh, folks, if you want to, I want to encourage you, go to, to John's website, johnhendricks.com, where you can find information about Faithful Spy, about other projects that he does and works on, see past things. Um, if you want to get the Faithful Spy, which I strongly encourage, I think you have to do it online. Um, but go to your local bookstore, bookstore and have them order it. Uh, and that way it gets in more hands and they'll see it. And maybe someone will flip through and think, we should buy this. We should have this on display at our own bookstore. And that's how we get the word out. It's one of the ways. Uh, but I encourage you to read it. It is a really, really good telling of Bonhoeffer's story, labeled young adults, but I, I think all ages, uh, which is how young adult label goes nowadays anyways. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's fully appropriate for young adults. It's, it's dense. Uh, you know, I've had adults come up to me and tell me that, they understand um, Hitler's rise to power better than they ever have. So yeah. I, I think it's like just a nice, simple explainer of what happened in a very appealing format. Nice. All right, John, thank you very much. All right, thanks. Okay. And there was the conversation I had with John Hendricks. Um, you know, go read a comic book. I'm, I'm recording this outro. Uh, you know, obviously, we, I did that episode with John a couple months ago before the whole coronavirus thing really um, went into full gear and um, before I was looking for things to do while I stayed inside. Um, I actually have plenty to do, so you don't have to send suggestions to me. But go ahead anyways. I mean, have a good time. But now that you've got to stay inside... Read a comic book. Read a graphic novel. Read The Faithful Spy by John Hendricks. It's excellent. It really is an excellent um, telling of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story, or a portion of it, but it, it was really, really good. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope it did inspire you to read graphic novels. They, it is a reputable medium in its own right. Don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. I appreciate you listening. I value you listening. I'm grateful for you listening. I'm glad that you listen. Can I say that any other way? Uh, if you want to send a message to me, you can send that to 12enough at gmail.com. You can find the show notes to this episode and other episodes at 12enough.com. Right now, you can also find these Wednesday night devotionals I've been doing with Pastor Charlie Eastman just to help us um, with our spirituality through this time. You can also find all the worship services that I do at the church right now. In case you were curious, what does worship, worship service look like? Well, now you can have a look. That's on the blog itself. Uh, but, you know, go and look at the show notes for this episode and previous episodes as well. 
I mean, what what else are you doing with your time? You're reading graphic novels. You're listening to podcasts. You're living the life. That's living the life. While you're at it, pickle some watermelon rinds. You've got time. And you have those watermelons that you've been waiting to eat, but you didn't know what to do with the rinds. Now you have the time. Pickle the watermelon rinds. It's a, that one was for free. Uh, also go to Facebook and you can follow along uh, follow, follow along um, on the many adventures of Jonathan Malone and 12 Enough on Facebook slash 12 Enough. And 12 is always written out. Go to John Hendrick's website where he has actually a lot more serious things that really talk about what it, he is doing. Um, this book, previous books, and maybe he's ready to start sharing about the new project that he's working on. That's John Hendricks, H-E-N-D-R-I-X.com. And John is with an H, J-O-H-N. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Twelve Enough is a podcast about Christian faith and culture in the modern age. Your host, Jonathan Malone, is the pastor of the First Baptist Church of East Greenwich, Rhode Island. John Hendricks is an author, illustrator, graphic designer, professor, and just generally nice guy. He's a nice guy. And you can find him at johnhendricks.com. The music for this episode is done by Andrew Malone. You can find some of his stuff at andrewmalone.com. And by Charlie Eastman. You can't find his music. Don't try. He doesn't want to give it out. He's very protective about that. All the thoughts, ideas, opinions, ruminations, moments of brilliance, moments otherwise, and just those little bits of those gems that you find when you're listening and you weren't expecting it. You know what? They don't reflect the uh, host's families or friends or places of work or the family of Dietrich Bonhoeffer or anyone else of that nature. They are their own ideas. This is their podcast.